0: Thank you. Well, we're going to think about that passage. You could keep it open on your in your Bibles or your devices or whatever you're using. Let's pray that God would help us to reflect on those well-known verses. Heavenly Father, we do ask that we would see uh, this passage afresh and see its relevance to how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the screen behind me is a picture of Kansas Lamplow. Candace is a very nice lady. She works in our church office on Mondays and Fridays. So if you've ever visited or, or rung up, you would have got her. She's a keen Christian. She's good at her job. Uh, I'm sure she's great with her family. She's certainly a lovely work colleague and she's really quite a good runner. But, well, well in May of this year, Candice and her family went on holidays up north and significantly influenced by my enthusiastic recommendation, they visited Tropical Fruit World, near the Queensland border on the far north coast, formerly known as Avocado World, now Tropical Fruit World. And at lunchtime, I think it was on Friday this week, she confessed to me, somewhat sheepishly, that the family had visited Tropical Fruit World, but that, well... She didn't want to be too nasty about it. They'd been a little bit underwhelmed by the experience. What was all the fuss about, she seemed to imply? Why was all the bother necessary? Her reaction was a little bit like um, my reaction on first seeing blue poles at the New South Wales Art Gallery, if you've ever seen it. (laughs) But because I have good social skills and I'm sure a very high EQ, I did not immediately throw my lunch at her. Uh, Instead... I prompted some conversation and said, "Lord, what did you do there? So she said that she'd been into the shop and looked at the fruit and there was a cafe which she thought was a little bit overpriced but they felt they needed to buy something so she purchased a bit of fruit and then took a photograph and they all left off the you know, greater excitement elsewhere. So I said, did you go on the tour? I said, no, she said. So I said, so you, didn't, you and your kids didn't go on the tractor ride? No. You didn't actually pick tropical fruit from trees, no. Crack nuts with nutcrackers, no. You didn't go on the boat ride where your kids could have fed the little birdies swimming around in the water next to you, no, we didn't do that. You didn't ride the mini train, no. You didn't fly on the flying fox, no. Feed the emus and kangaroos, no. You didn't personally sample the smorgasbord of weird and wonderful fruit options available to you there, no, she said, looking somewhat sheepish by now. See, she'd so done the equivalent of like going to Luna Park, looking at the big smiley face and then leaving. That, I should have said with reference to the many wonders of tropical fruit will which they'd not partaken of, that was what all the fuss was about, that was why it was worth it, that was why it was necessary to go there. Isn't that interesting? Well, we're continuing our term four series today and we're looking at the first four chapters of Matthew. And we're particularly thinking about Matthew 1 18 to 25, which is headed the virgin birth. Now, can I say that this particular event really would have caused an awful lot of fuss, an awful lot of bother, an awful lot of stress, and a lot of pain for the participants when this initially took place. Now, this passage, as you would know, is often preached on at Christmas time but if we strip away all the Christmas trimmings and look at what it actually says, I think you would see that not only would the air Joseph and Mary have been fuss, bother, stress and pain, it would have been highly awkward for them, highly emotional, and they would have found uh, they experienced an awful lot of cultural shame by what took place. Now, was all the stress, bother, fuss and etc. worth it? Well, we'll consider these events in an effort to answer that question with two focuses. If you look at your insert with an outline of the main points of the talk, I want to look at from two particular focuses, or foci. Um, Firstly, Joseph's story, uh, a perspective not as often considered when we're thinking about this passage, and secondly, of course, Jesus' story. Now, before we get into that, I'd just like to make a quick comment. The passage describes, of course, the virgin birth. The virgin birth is described in scriptures. It's part of the Nicene Creed, if you ever get to say that. But some people find the idea of a a virgin birth a little bit hard to cope with. Now, it seems to me that there really should be no logical problem with it. I mean, if God does exist, if he creates the world, if he sustains the world, if he did the... uh, brought about the incredible miracles that she's periodically done throughout human history, including raising Jesus from the dead, well, of course, if he chose to, he could organise a virgin birth. So it really should present no problems if there's this sort of God. Now, of course, if there is no God, well, then the virgin birth's ludicrous and what on earth are we doing here anyway in the first place? But logically, I don't think there should be a problem. Similarly, if God wants to speak to someone through a dream via one of his, his messengers, you know, an angel... He can certainly do that as well. Uh, if there is a God, these are certainly sorts of things he could do. I don't think they should present problems uh, to us if we believe in God. Anyway, that's just an aside. Let's look at the passage itself and think firstly about Joseph's story. Now, when we think about this passage at Christmas time, we often uh, associate it with the nativity scene, Mary and the baby, uh, uh, the angel visiting, perhaps the magi if we read on into Matthew chapter 2. But. These verses focus to a very great extent on Joseph. Do you notice that? Probably the figure we least think about in this whole drama. If you read about the birth account in Luke's Gospel, the focus is more on Mary's perspective. Here in Matthew's Gospel, the focus is more on Joseph's perspective. And for Joseph, the events described are not comfortable and cosy like some of our Christmases, but the events of these verses would have been really extremely stressful for him. Which I guess raises the question is, what are we like when we're under stress and pressure? When you are stressed and under pressure, often our character is shown for what it is, what rises to the surface? When you get stressed, do you get irritable? When you get stressed, do you fly off the handle easily? When you get stressed, you get really self focused. When you get stressed, you perhaps withdraw into yourself, crawl up on the ball in the fetal position on your bedroom floor at home and rock around and sort of in an effort to cope with it. Um, now, when I get stressed, I tend to get very focused, and if my kids interrupt me, I can be a little short with them on occasions. Let's see how Joseph reacted to this stressful situation because he gets a number of shocks. The first shock is his loved one's. Unplanned pregnancy. Look at verse 18. Now this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now I should explain here, being pledged in those days was like being engaged, but only more so. Uh, I guess the, the obligation to get married was much stronger uh, you know, you can, you can break off an engagement here, you know, it's awkward but it's not that hard but to uh, break off a pledge to be married in the first century it required something pretty much like a divorce. It was much, a sort of, I guess, a much higher commitment situation to be in. Anyway, they pledged to be married. Uh, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph but before they came together she was found to be with pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Right, you might have thought at the time. Now Joseph would have been shocked and stunned when he saw and figured out what this bump with Mary actually was. And he would have known that the baby was not his, which meant that there's really only one possible explanation, isn't there? Now men, imagine you're engaged, if you were engaged at some point, imagine went back you were engaged. and and you've decided you're not going to have sex until you're married, which is what I absolutely endorse and thoroughly recommend, Uh, but just say you're engaged, you haven't had sex with your your fiancé, and suddenly you realise she's pregnant. How on earth would you feel about that? You'd think, my goodness, she's had a one-night stand, she's had a fling, she's had an affair, she's been leading a double life. You would feel, well, work out how yourself, how you might feel, Now, Mary might have sort of said, oh, look, it was the Holy Spirit, you know, it's a divine sort of thing, and come on, he's going to go, sure it is. You're not going to take it seriously, are you? And I can't imagine that Joseph would have taken it seriously. Uh, What would you do in that situation then? What did Joseph do? Let's see verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace... He had it in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, the more we think about that, this is really a very impressive response. You see, he's described as being a, a godly and upright sort of man, the sort of man who was faithful to God's law. And in this situation, the thing which would have been expected to have been done would have, been have to have uh, divorced Mary, to have done it publicly, to have exposed her as an adulteress uh, and um, that was what would normally would have happened. Now, Joseph thinks, yes, I've got to divorce her because of this, but he also shows himself to be a very kind man because even in these circumstances, he doesn't want to make a public show of her. He doesn't want to unnecessarily punish her. Presumably, he doesn't want to make things harder on her than needs be. You know, he could have sort of said, how dare you, I'm going to drag your name through the mud. No one does that to me. You know, you you would have got your pound of flesh. Well, that's what some people would have done. He doesn't do that at all. He decides to do it quietly so as not to expose her to public disgrace. Pretty impressive. Now, I guess the question is, when you and I are under stress, when we've been wronged or apparently wronged, how do we respond? We get angry and insist on revenge, our pound of flesh, so I'm going to do the legal thing and drag you through the mud because no one does that to Stephen Liggins or whatever your name may happen to be. To be. Or are we endeavouring to be godly and, and actually kind like Joseph here? It's, it's a really quite a, a convicting example, I think. Well, there's more in store for Joseph. Shop number two is the dream. Look at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He's then told she'll have a son, you should call him Jesus. And can I say, here we actually see the kindness of God. Because No matter how kind and understanding a man you might be, a fiancé alleging that she has a divine pregnancy, you're just not going to believe it unless you get some sort of divine pronouncement telling you that's actually what it is. So that's very kind of God. And then we next learn that Joseph, who pays great attention to God's law, also pays great attention to God's messenger here because we learn in verse 24 that when Joseph woke up he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife and then obediently in verse 25 when the baby's born he gave him the name Jesus under pressure he's listening to God you might think isn't that lovely everything's very nice now but bear in mind that Mary knows how she got pregnant Joseph now knows how she got pregnant. If we read Luke, we might assume that maybe Mary's cousin Elizabeth and maybe her husband Zachariah knew that there was something a bit unusual about this pregnancy. But there's no record of the angel having appeared to the rest of Joseph's family or the rest of Mary's family or Joseph's workmates or the guys he, he sort of hung out with or all the village or villages which they lived in. They didn't get that. They're all going to assume Mary got herself pregnant, or someone else got Mary pregnant, depending on how you look at it, uh, and it wasn't Joseph. What are they going to think of them? Well, what would they have thought of Joseph? Some people might think Joseph's a bit of a fool to stick with Mary. They might think that Joseph has no honour, he has no shame, he has no pride. They might have thought, oh, Joseph's a bit desperate, isn't he? Or he's weak, or he's deluded. Some people might have thought... Oh, good on him, you know, good on him for sticking with that, you know, somewhat suspect woman, right? Uh, but, you know, even though we, Joseph knows what's going on, their lives would have been surrounded by, I guess, rumour, innuendo, shame. It would not have been easy. No doubt stories circulated. Now, in the 2nd century, there was a guy by the name of Celsus, a philosopher, no friend of Christianity, and he reports in one of his writings that uh, Mary was made pregnant by a Roman soldier, And no doubt that was probably one of many rumours which flew around about what may have taken place here. But can I say that Joseph, once again, is quite an impressive example because he listened to God and was obedient to God, even when being obedient to God was going to expose him to a level of public shame, public disgrace, rumour and innuendo. So, I guess the question for us is, do we listen to God and do what he says when that might involve us? being exposed to a bit of social awkwardness or rumour or innuendo or even public disgrace. Someone might say, to you in a public situation? Oh, so you are you a Christian? Oh, um, oh, oh, you know, maybe. You know, someone says to you, you in a public situation, so are you saying that Jesus is the only way to be saved? What about all the other religions? Oh, well, you know. Um, someone might say to you, so do you think the sex before marriage is wrong? Um, or do you think the cheating on your taxes, is, 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 that's okay, isn't it? Or, um, okay, look, I'm getting married, um, we're going out for well, my, my Bucks night, are we going to go to strip club in King's Cross, are you going to come along? Oh, you know, oh, you know. Are, are you going to um, do the right thing, which may expose you to a bit of ridicule, or, or are you going to just sort of fit in? Well, Joseph is a really good example here of someone who is prepared to be obedient to God even when it meant something for his, I guess, social reputation. Well, Joseph's story, I think, is, is a surprisingly uh, impressive one. But, of course, the main story is not Joseph's story, but it's Jesus' story, which brings us on to our second point. Now, I mentioned Celsus, uh, this, this second-century philosopher a short while ago. Uh, once again, no friends of Christians. Uh, and uh, he once apparently asked in one of his writings, why did God come to live on earth? You know, did he really need to? Why did he have to? Etc. Why all the fuss, bother, stress or pain of it? Well, could I, I'd like to suggest that the two names given to Jesus in this passage explain why God had to come to earth. Now it's interesting the names that people give their children. Uh, one of the more interesting names was the name that Paul E. Yates gave the child she had with Michael Hutchins, if you remember back, that back in about 1990 seven or six or something like that. Do you remember Paulie Yates's daughter's name? Heavenly Hirani Tiger Lily. But well done, John, that was pretty good. You're halfway there. Why on earth did she name her daughter Heavenly Hirani Tiger Lily? Who can know? Well, I can tell you why we named our children the names we gave them. Our son, Bill, William James Liggins. William was my dad's name, James is Shireen's dad's name. There we go, named after grandfathers. Daughter, Charlotte Grace. Why Charlotte Grace? Well, we like the name Charlotte Grace, that's a nice name too, but it reminds us of God's grace, that's a a good reminder of grace. That's where those names came from. Well, in Jesus' time, names were extremely significant and they were intended to convey meaning. Now, the two names here tell us that the reason why God had to come to earth or the Son of God came to earth were for reasons of rescue and relationship. Let's look at how that works out. Firstly, rescue. Verse 21. Verse 21. The angelic messenger tells Joseph she will give birth to a son. You were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Now, people love it when they get saved. Uh, Shireen and I are friends with the lady who runs Rainbow Preschool, that preschool down on Singles Ridge Road. Just over six years ago, you all remember the fires went through. And during the height of that, uh, preschool was on, this lady was there at work with all the kids in the school, there was fire and smoke surrounding everywhere. It it would have been absolutely chaotic. Thank goodness um, some of the firemen arrived, they got the kids out, I think, into the back of the van or whatever it was, plus the staff, drove them through the smoke to safety. Uh, The backyard of the preschool was burned, The, the, the house actually was saved. Can you imagine being in that situation with all those kids with fire and smoke everywhere with no time to prepare? How would you have felt? The is turn up, out they go. Uh, she is very grateful <laughs> to those fire people who saved her. Now, uh, what does Jesus save us from? It says, you know, because he will save his people from. Now, what, what, what do people do you think? What do you think people want to be saved from today? Imagine the last two words of verse 21 were not there, so that it read. Um, So you will give birth to a son, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from dot, dot, dot. Imagine it was a blank. So imagine you wrote up verse 21 on a bit of paper, left the last two words out, just left a a blank line and placed it up on the wall at, I don't know, work or school or, or up at the shops or somewhere else and you said to people, what would you like to fill in there? What would you like to be saved from? What do you think people might write? I don't know. Some people might say, look, wouldn't it be great if we were saved from global warming? They might fill in global warming. Or uh, from poverty. Or wouldn't it be great to be saved from terrorism? Or wouldn't it be great to be saved from intolerance? We're such an intolerant society. Or maybe people might be a bit more self-focused. I'd really like to be saved from loneliness. Or I'd like to be saved from sickness or I'd like to be saved from low self-esteem or, or lack of purpose, or I'd like to be saved from bullying, or I'd like to be saved from domestic violence. Now, all of those things I've mentioned are really, really important and Jesus is very concerned about all those horrible things. But as important as those things are, Jesus's concerns go even deeper because Jesus' concerns goes to the root of, of the problems, all those problems that I've just described. Because the root of all those problems is of course sin. It's sin, self-seeking, God-denying sin, which ultimately leads to all those other things which I've described. Assuming that global warming is human-caused, which I assume it is to a great extent. So God is concerned with the root cause and that's what he's coming to save us from. Now, If you go to the doctor with chicken pox, you want him not to cover up the spots with band-aids, you want him to go to the root cause of what's causing the chicken pox. And that's the sort of thing which God is concerned about. He's going to deal with the root cause, regardless of the more still hugely important but less root issues. Do you ever watch TV documentaries or group panel discussions and they're talking about something in the world and what's wrong with it and people propose their solutions to whatever the problem is with you know poverty or education or bullying in schools or whatever and often people can say some really helpful and really sensible things but it's not often that anyone will volunteer what the root cause of all the problems is, which is sin. I've never heard that on the ABC. Um, people are very good at ignoring the root cause of all these problems. I think I told this story once about five or six years ago, I'm going to tell it again. Uh, in the 1980s, I was at university. I did my law degree and I did my arts degree. My arts degree was a mass communication major or, or media studies. And back in the 1980s, uh, mass communication, of course, which I was in, was full of these really bright, creative inner city sorts a- and me. Um, in one class discussion, uh, we were having a class discussion, the topic of evil came up and the conversation sort of ran along the following lines. Um, yeah, um, you know, like there's all this evil in the world. How did it get there? I mean, you know, like people. I try and do the, you know, I try and do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so we try and do the right thing, but there are all these problems. And you know, where does the evil come from? Everyone's sort of, you know, looking meaningfully into middle distance. And so Steve Liggins plucks up his courage, you know, straight from the North Shore, says, um. Well, you know, the Bible would actually say that we were created to live a certain way, but we don't. We sort of reject our creator, which is what the Bible calls sin, and, and this has consequences. It means we become sort of, I guess, a bit more self-focused and self-serving, and, and that manifests itself in all sorts of ways and creates all the sorts of problems which we've, sort of, well, we've been discussing here. And as I was talking, to my sort of slight surprise, I got the impression that people were thinking, my goodness, I don't like what he's saying, but it seems to make a bit of sense. Maybe he's right, and there's a sort of this sort of awkward sort of feeling in the room and then one guy, Chris, who was a very cool sort of student, sort of says uh, yeah um steve that's you know that's really good um but you know the way I see it it's sort of um more like it's more like a um like an empty room <laughs> and uh everyone sort of goes. Goodness, an empty... Oh, look. Yeah, that must be what it is. That's certainly what's causing it. Ah, thank you. And everyone was greatly relieved that, that Chris had come in with obviously what the right answer was. <laughs> now, you know, uh, what's wrong with the world is not out there. What's wrong with the world is in here. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a great English you know, writer, was once asked, what's wrong with the world? And he said, I am. I guess referring to the problem in the human heart or the human brain or the human mind. <laughs> which I guess raises the good question is, have you had the root problem in your life dealt with? Now, we have a lot of other problems in our life that we try to deal with, but the root problem is, of course, sin. Now, it's good to ask this question pretty frequently in church, but have you had your sin comprehensively dealt with by God? Now, it doesn't get dealt with by coming to church, although coming to church is a good thing to do. It doesn't get dealt with by doing good works, although doing good works is a good thing to do. It's certainly not dealt with by thinking, oh, look, I'll worry about that some other time. That does no one any good. Or is it the case that our sin has been dealt with? Now, our sin is dealt with by, based on what Jesus went on to do. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he took our sins on himself on the cross. Great, but we don't get the benefit of that at all unless we ask Jesus to forgive us and say we want to follow him, what the Bible calls repentance and belief. That's what gets us forgiven, gets our root problem dealt with, gives us the promise of eternal life, relationship with God and a whole lot of other things. So I'll ask you again, have you actually, you, at any point in your life, done that and made efforts to have the root problem in your life dealt with? Because in a group this size, I don't know, I'm not particularly thinking of anyone, but I'm sure there are people who haven't. If not, why not? Now, if it's the case that at some stage in your life, recently or perhaps many years ago, you have, thanks to God, had the root problem or the root cause of all the problems in your life dealt with and God is now living in your life and changing you, I guess I have a question for you and me because that's the case with me. Christmas is coming up. Does the root cause of the problems in the world and the cure for the root cause of the problems in the world is doing something about that going to feature it all in your Christmas plans? Now you're probably thinking about your holidays and your puddings and your present, all of which is wonderful, but you know, really it's all about dealing, Jesus coming to deal with the root problem that we all have. Is God's concern going to have anything much to do with your Christmas plans? Now, that could, that could affect your Christmas plans in lots of ways, like what you do on Christmas Day, what you do before Christmas Day, uh, what you read, what you think about, your conversations with fr- Look, there's a women's wreath-making event coming up, which you could invite someone along to. You know, uh, is the root problem of humanity and the cure for it going to feature in your busy Christmas period? in any way, shape or form. You know I'm supposed to say that because I'm a minister. But, you know, is it going to? Another thought. Many of us are starting to make plans for 2020 next year. What are we going to do next year? Where will we live? What will we do? What am I going to use my time and money and talents for? I mean, you know, we've been asked to think about, um, you know, what ministries you might do at church next year. Okay, when we're planning next year, is the root cause of the problems in the world and the cure for it going to feature in how we structure our time, what we do with our finances and stuff? Once again, you know, you're supposed to, but actually is that part of your planning mix? There are lots of good things to do, uh, but is that at the core of what we're doing? You know what I'm saying. Well, let's move more briefly on to the second reason that God came uh, to earth. We've talked about rescue, but the second reason is, of course, relationship, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which, of course, means God with us. Okay, so when the Son of God came to earth, that's an example of God being with us, with humanity. Uh, But can you remember that Jesus coming to earth was not like him going on some marvellous backpacking adventure? You know, when I was younger, I would loved going off to these really seedy places in Africa and Southeast Asia and, oh, wow, this is an adventure. This is exciting. Coming to earth for God is not like that because God is perfectly pure and holy and he comes to a world infested by sin. The exact antithesis of his character wouldn't have been like a stimulating backpacking or holiday experience. But God came to earth to be with us so that we could be if we become followers of Jesus, with him. is all about relationships. Now, can I say that in our natural state, people are not in a relationship with God. We are not children of God. The Bible would tell us that everyone on the planet is created in the image of God and thus every person on the planet is very important, but every person on the planet is not a child of God. According to the Scriptures, we become a child of God. Well, how do we become a child of God? John chapter 1, verse 12 says... Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So everyone you can see created in the image of God is only Christians, people who have become Christians who are children of God. Now can I say that we are children of God means that God is actually with us, uh, with us personally and that is a wonderful truth because we need never be alone, that being the case. Now, as many of you know, I wrote a book on Christianity and travel a few years ago. Some of you may even have read it. Uh, But in it, I mention what my favourite travel verse is. And that's Psalm 139, verses 9 and 10, which says, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So, you know, you're travelling. Rise on the wings of the dawn, it's like being on a plane, settling on the far side of the sea, Asia, Europe, Africa, whatever. Even there, as much as here, God's hand will guide us and hold us fast. Now, it's not really about travel, it's just basically saying wherever we are, no matter whatever situation we're in, God is with us. If we're God's children, uh, if we're with him, uh, God will always be with us. So let me conclude. Matthew one to 18-25 is a very well-known passage, but hopefully by considering, I guess, what we can learn from Joseph. We've learned a few helpful and gained a few insights there. But also, hopefully, we've been reminded that the whole reason this takes place is for reasons of rescue and for reasons of relationship, to which I'd ask you either, have you been rescued and do you have that relationship? Or if you have, how are we planning and structuring our lives? Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which often surprises us, with its relevance for us and our situation. We do pray that as we reflect on this passage, we would, I guess, be encouraged by Joseph's example and maybe rendered to uh, perhaps consider our ways a bit. But we also thank you so much that it's, this story is all about rescue and relationship. Well we pray that that would either be true for us, and if it is, that we would live in the light of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.